We're going to continue our series this week titled Seasons. Um, this series is about learning to trust God through change. Our hope is to go uh, from despising or at best tolerating change to being grateful for it. That's going to be hard, isn't it? Because change can be difficult. Uh, last week, we took time to establish a seemingly simple but sometimes forgotten principle, simply that change happens. We took time to establish the fact that change happens. No matter how hard we try to insulate ourselves from any disruption to our comfortable and consistent lifestyle or the status quo, we cannot escape change. It is inevitable. Uh, we read from Ecclesiastes that there's a time and a season for everything. Uh, we heard from the Apostle Paul about the secret of contentment in all things from his letter to the Philippians. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 2. And while you're turning there, um, I'm going to give you a bit of an abridged version, shortened version of the history of the Hebrew people that leads up to this point in Exodus 2, okay? And there's a couple reasons I want to do that. Um, and some of you right now are going to have to fight the temptation to check out, because first of all, I gave you an Old Testament verse to turn to, so some of you automatically start to go, oh, he's all he's going Old Testament. Um, okay, don't do that. Secondly, um, there, there's two reasons I think it's really important to take a little time to establish some history so we have context for what we're about to talk about. Um, partially, the reason I want to do this is so you can see how the Old Testament is not like fragmented stories. Um, a lot of times you'll have that. Like we think of the Old Testament, we think of my favorite story, right? So me and Lucy both like David and Goliath. She's got a Jesus storybook Bible, and it's really cool because like when you get to the Goliath part, the page flips, so like he's even bigger, right? And so she really likes reading about that, and David hits him with the rock, and of course, you know, I'm real animated, and Goliath's got a laugh that I do pretty well, if I do say so myself. Um, not a thespian, but could have been. So, yeah, you know, we all have our favorite stories right from the Old Testament, but that's not what the Old Testament is. Not a bunch of fragmented stories that God threw together in a big pot so that, you know, we had a bunch of stories to pick from. It's, it's, it's really a flowing narrative, and what it's tracking is the unfolding of God's plan of redemption for all of us. There's a point, there's a reason why those stories are where they are. And if you, if you read it in context and you read it together, you'll see that it's a history of God's people and, and the unfolding of God's plan as starting from where he created us and then the plan from then on to save us from our sin. Seeing how it all links together in God's plan, uh, it magnifies the importance of these individual stories, seeing them in their context, seeing them in the narrative. I mean, having David and Goliath out by itself, it's, it's just awesome, right? I mean, if you're a guy and you read when David's talking smack to Goliath and you don't get pumped up, like it should make you want to do push-ups, okay? Because he's like, first of all, we know he's, he's not big in and of himself, but he's just so confident in his God that he just talks mad trash to this like huge trained soldier. And uh, it's, it's really, it's a good testosterone booster. So if you're feeling down, check it out. Um, that's cool in and of itself, but when you understand how it fits into the overall narrative, uh, why, why is David even make it as far as being in the Old Testament? What, how, and how does he link ultimately to Jesus? That's the whole deal. The Old Testament, all of it is pointing forward to, to Christ. So, uh, but it, it magnifies the importance of those individual stories, and, and it also shows how pivotal that the extreme acts of faith you see happen in the Old Testament, how pivotal they were to the, the overall fulfilling of God's plan, okay? So, um, and really, I'm going to go from Abraham to 
uh, right here in Exodus 2 where we're going to pick up with Moses, okay? And it's, like I said, it's going to be a bridge that's going to be short, um, and it won't have everything. So, you know, if you remember a detail that I don't say, gotcha. No, I know, right? I can't say everything that happened, but it's important. You should have some sense. I'm not saying you should be able to stand up and do what I'm about to do, but you should have some sense of what happens from Abraham to Moses and then you know, Moses to the judges and then judges to the kings and understanding how all that goes together because the, the history of, of the people of God that's given to us in the Old Testament is our history because we're Christians, right? So all of this is, is what led up to Christ coming. And so, and it's beautiful anyways, and there's lots of uh, encouragement to be drawn from it. So uh, <clears throat> it starts out, so we're going to start with Abraham. God calls Abraham, okay? to change everything about his life, to uproot his family, uh, take all of his belongings, and start traveling. And here is what God tells him about the journey. This is, this is mind-blowing. Uh, God tells him this about the destination. Go to a place where I will show you. That's what he gives him. I want you to pull up everything. So this is the equivalent of God asking you, get a change of address form. You're about to move. Quit your job. Get all of your stuff. Stick it in a U-Haul or, you know, for some of you, two U-Hauls or whatever it would take to get all your junk together. And I'll tell you where to go. Just start out, and I'll, I'll let you know when I decide where it is you're actually going to end up. Oh. A lot of us wouldn't do all that if he gave us the exact destination, right? Abraham like got the ball rolling on just trusting God and being willing to embrace change to obey him. Uh, for real, man. It's serious. Uh, then God gives him a miracle baby in his old age named Isaac. Isaac means laughter because his wife kind of laughs when God tells them because they're both in their 90s, right? And God's like, I'm going to give you a son. <laughs> and she's over there going, <laughs> you, know <what> I mean? <laughs> you can't falter. You know, we like to get pious when we read the Bible because like we've got the whole story and so we know how it ends and that God does actually do what he says he's going to do. But in the middle of the story, like we, we so would have the same reaction or worse many times. Um, so... God gives him a miracle baby. His name is Isaac. Isaac grows into a young lad, and then uh, God tells Abraham to sacrifice him. Uh, Christians get lots of flack for these verses, um, but it's from people that don't understand context. I would say uh, that that would result in at least a slight bit of change in Abraham's life, right? This This is a change. God gives me a miracle baby. Yay! He, you know, gets 10, 12, 13 years old. Not really sure. Gets to the point he's around long enough for kind of become a part of the family and become a fixture to what's going on, and then God says, I want you to sacrifice him. That would be a change. That, I mean, dinner would go different, yes or no, right? It would probably come up. Oh, yeah, you remember when he sacrificed our son? Yep, I do remember that. That was weird. Okay, so <laughs> um, that, would, that would be a big change. Uh, yet the book of Hebrews says that Abraham so trusted God's promise uh, concerning his descendants, that he was willing to sacrifice his son. And here was what Abraham reasoned. God is so faithful. God is so true. God promised me that there would be descendants and they would go through Isaac and that the world would be blessed because of him. And so if he's asking me to sacrifice him now, then surely he will bring him back to life. He was so confident in God's promise, he was willing to take his son up a hill and cut his throat. He trusted God that much. Now, I know to some of you that sounds weird, but a lot of what was going on there was a foreshadowing of Christ. It's amazing how much the picture of that story we see Jesus, Isaac, carrying the wood up the hill to the place of his execution, right? 
um, there's, there's a ton of foreshadowing to what Christ is going to do. And, so, and also we see an extreme act of faith and how pivotal that is for the whole narrative. And so the story keeps going. Um, God does provide a ram. Isaac doesn't get cut. Dinner time doesn't get weird, right? So Isaac gets to grow up, and he marries Rebecca. okay? Rebecca bears the infamous twins, Esau. Um, the Bible says that Esau came out red all over. Uh, I don't have any proof of this, but he may, it may be his genes that we have to thank for all the gingers in the world. I don't know when all of that started, but um, he could be responsible. So thank you, Esau. Um, and Jacob, his name means supplanter. And supplanter, not a word we use in common English vernacular, means to kind of overtake by treachery, okay? Or to gain by treachery. So uh, cool name. They grow up and Esau comes in one day, right? So Esau's a hunter. He comes in one day famished. He's being dramatic. I'm going to die if I don't have something to eat, as many of you do. It's not true. Um, and so he comes in after hunting. Like He may have actually been out there hunting for days and could have been close to death. Most of you don't experience that uh, very often or at all. So uh, here he comes, comes in from the field, and he trades his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. Bad move, Esau. Uh, so after that happens, Jacob then being the supplanter, he goes in and tricks his father into blessing him as the leader of the family, right? So Esau was born first. Jacob came out grabbing his heel, so he was second. Firstborn should have had the blessing, should have been the leader of the family. That should have been Esau, the redhead. But that's not how it went down. Esau traded his birthright, and then Jacob stole, essentially stole the blessing. And so uh, as, as his father Isaac is dying, he does that. And so uh, Jacob has to leave town for a while because the passionate and impulsive Redheaded brother wants to murder him, okay? Again, you know, <laughs> I don't know if it's just redheads or what. But uh, so I know many of you and love you. Um, so while on vacation, right? So Jacob's gone. He's on vacation trying not to be murdered, yes? Uh, Jacob meets Rachel, okay? Now, some of you girls have an idea of what romance is. Let me just say this, and I'm not going to get into it. If you want to read a romantic story and you want to understand what, what romance really is and you want to see what kind of man you should be looking for, Read the story of Jacob and Rachel, man. This guy works seven years to have this girl. And the Bible says, and not only that, so he works seven years, and then uh, Rachel's father, uh, Laban, pulls a fast one on him, and on, on his wedding night, he is tricked into consummating with his cross her cross-eyed older sister, Leah, who the Bible says is weak-eyed and gives the impression she's pretty ugly. So, like, she's the older sister, Rachel's the younger sister, Jacob thinks Rachel's fine. He's like, yeah, I'll work seven years for her. Steep price, but I'll do it. So apparently, I mean, what does that tell us about Rachel, guys? Right? So um, he's, he'll do it. But then, <laughs> wakes up after the wedding night. I don't know if wine was involved. Probably. Uh, <laughs> you know, he wakes up from the wedding night, and it's like, oh, you give me the ugly one. And so, um, you know, but you, it, what goes around comes around, right? Tricked, tricked his brother, tricked his dad. So, you know, you reap what you sow. That's the deep spiritual lesson here. Um, but so anyways, but then he agrees to work seven more years for Rachel. I mean, girls, a guy would work 14 years, hard agricultural labor for you. That's the kind of guy you want. Not someone that has the best score on Call of Duty, okay? <laughs> um, So then, okay, so here's the deal. So that, that story works itself out, right? Um, he ends up getting Rachel. Yay, 
Go read it, and it's awesome. Um, And so then Jacob is married to two sisters, okay? That may cause you reason for pause. It should. Here's the deal. Uh, The customs of the day were a little weird, and families that relied on agriculture to survive, uh, they need a lot of kids to make that work, okay? So you're a shepherd, and you're trying to live off the land. So polygamy wasn't that uncommon at that point. And if you have to remember, we haven't got, we're, we're leading up to Moses. We haven't got to the Ten Commandments. We haven't got to a lot of the law. We haven't got to the point where um, polygamy was forbidden, okay? So it wasn't that uncommon, but marrying two sisters, is, he's a brave guy. I just got to say that. Um, marrying two women at all, <laughs> you have to, intelligence and or courage. Um, courage, not question, intelligence, yes. But anyways, uh, so between the two of them and their maidservants, it gets weird, okay? Turn off Jerry Springer and read Genesis if you're bored. Uh, between the two of them and their maidservants, Jacob ended up with 12 sons. How many of you in here under 25 know what Jerry Springer is? Yes? Okay, good. I have to check my references every couple years because I'm aging. So <laughs> it's so bad when I say something I can just tell. Everyone, like Many people under 30 had no idea what I just said. I'm, I go home and Natalie has to console me. Um, <laughs> it's hard. But we will make it. Um, so he ended up with 12 sons after it's all said and done. And after a while, Jacob decides to return home. Um, you know, he had to leave, remember, because his brother was going to kill him. On the way home, he gets in a wrestling match with God, and that ends up in God renaming him Israel. Right? Okay, so for some of you, some of this is, you're with me. Some of you, you're, you're already lost. So we've got Abraham, leaves his country, right? Obeys God. Uh, God gives him Isaac, right? Isaac then marries Rebekah. They have Esau and Jacob. Esau kind of screws his life up, not because he's a redhead, but he just makes bad decisions. Jacob, you know, is kind of a deceiver, but ends up on the, the best end of the stick. He ends up having to leave because Esau's going to kill him. He gets married. He ends up having the 12 sons, right? You hear the, the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what that's all about, okay? You tracking with me? I recap. I'm only going to do it one more time. You got to stick with me. I know it's dark outside. This is important. Okay, so now uh, God names him, renames him Israel after they wrestle. That's weird too. Read that story. It's fun. Uh, now, Rachel, the wife he actually wanted. Remember? Leah, cross-eyed, not so good looking. Rachel, yes, I want her. The, the wife he actually wanted, she was barren for a long time. Huge bummer when having a bunch of wives is about kids because you need them to, you know, ride the sheep around and control them. So, um, but eventually God opened her womb and she gave birth to Joseph. Okay, Joseph was favored among his brothers, and he had a special colorful coat to prove it. You've heard of this before, minimally, maybe just because Broadway has shows about it, right? Joseph and the Technicolor Dream Coat. Some of you probably watched the Disney movie. Um, Joseph, right, was the favored son of Jacob. Uh, he also had dreams where the rest of his family bowed down to him. Okay, this did not make his older brothers happy, uh, and so one day they threw him in a pit, and then they sold him into slavery. Uh, this was a big change for Joseph, you may, as you may imagine, um, going from the favored son of a clan of shepherds to a slave in Egypt. Uh, that's a big deal. So uh, there was really no way for him to know that this change was a part of God's ultimate plan. Uh, and so though his life was totally turned upside down, jo- Joseph is fortunately sold to Potiphar as a slave. And you may say, what could be fortunate about being sold as a slave? It's who he was sold to, being sold to Potiphar, Ultimately, we see it's part of God's plan, but it really was good for him. Potiphar was a high-ranking official in Egypt. I mean, he could have been, 
He could have been sold to a camel dealer and been the camel poop guy, you know, forever. But instead, he was sold to Potiphar, which ended up, you know, because Joseph was blessed um, and because obviously God's hand was upon his life, he was quickly promoted within Potiphar's house. And so um, he quickly earns his trust. He's, he's lifted up. It, however, you get the sense that Joseph must have been a stud because it, and it, this ended up not being a good thing for him. Uh, because as you read after he's at Potiphar's house for a a while, Potiphar's wife tries to slip him like an Egyptian roofie and end up getting in bed with him. And, you know, instead of just giving into that, you guys know what a roofie is? Do you need help with that? Okay. It was funny. There was no roofies in Egypt. That's what, that's yeah. Okay. I tried to slip some jokes in here because I knew I was going to hit you with a bunch of Old Testament history and it's dark outside, but you got to work with me here. Okay. Meet me halfway. All right. So, she tries to get him to sleep with her. He will not do it. He runs away. This obviously offends her. And so she does not tell that story. She goes and says, Joseph came on to me. She flips the script a little bit. And uh, so he gets thrown into prison. Just as he had settled into and accepted the other crazy changes, right? So not only his brothers threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery, he kind of gets settled into being a slave, kind of rocks that life out, and then the bottom drops out from under him again. He ends up in prison. Okay. Uh, there he interprets dreams for the royal cupbearer and baker. Um, and word kind of gets out that Joseph can interpret dreams because of this. And then Pharaoh calls him in to interpret some crazy Dr. Seuss kind of dreams the Pharaoh's having about cows eating other cows. And it's getting weird. You got, I don't know if it's zombie cows or cannibal cows or what's going on, but like he's having these dreams and he can't sleep and he's getting messed up. So he calls Joseph, like, tell me what this means. And so Joseph ends up telling him, here's the deal, Pharaoh. You, you know, you got, <clears throat> you got seven fat cows getting eaten by seven skinny cows. You're going to have seven years of good harvest, seven years of plenty. Then after that is going to come seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, well, what should I do about this? And <clears throat> Joseph says, well, during the years of plenty, you need to gather up, save up, so that you can make it through uh, those years of famine. Pharaoh's so impressed with this that uh, he promotes Joseph and makes him second only to Pharaoh. Not bad, right? So goes from the pit, slave, does pretty good, jail, then ends up ruling Egypt, now higher than Potiphar himself. So uh, wouldn't you know it, after the seven years of good crops are over, right? The famine comes, Joseph, as Joseph had predicted, uh, and here comes Joseph's brothers bowing down to him, just as he had dreamed many years before, to buy grain because without it they will die. And here we see, we know that all the time, God's promise was to Abraham, that through that family line, ultimately what he's talking about, the redemption that's coming is through Christ. And we see that all the time, that change that happened to Joseph when he's in the pit and he's in slavery and then he's in jail, all the time, something in him, he didn't give up. I mean, there are those that would have just smashed their face into something and ended it at, at, at any one of the, I mean, your brothers betray you and sell you into slavery? That's a big deal. I mean, we, we have problems, but probably not that. And then you, and then it's like there's this light of hope. Well, it's bad, I'm a slave, but man, like as far as slaves go, I've pretty much got it going on. And then you get lied on and thrown back in jail. I mean, you, you could think about ending it. You could think about quitting. Something in him held out hope. Something in him, there was a faith in him that he kept going. Something in him knew that God wouldn't abandon him. And then he ends up 
all of that pain, all of that change, when you back out to the thousand mile view and you can see the before, the during, and the after, you can see all the time God was putting Joseph in place so that the promise could be fulfilled. Because had that family died out in the middle of that famine, the promise wouldn't have been fulfilled. Do you see it? Do you see God's purpose all woven through the midst of it? So, <clears throat> Joseph's brothers show up. They're bowing down to him. They don't recognize him, obviously. Joseph messes with their heads for a while, but he ends up forgiving them. Uh, and he moves his whole family to Egypt, okay? So, you've got Isaac. You've got his sons, Joseph. They all eventually die. But the Hebrew people settle there in Egypt, and they multiply quickly. Uh, and the Bible says they become more and mightier even than the Egyptians who own the land that they're there. And so what happens is a new king of Egypt uh, that did not know Joseph arises, and he decides to enslave the sons of Israel for fear that they may rise up against them. Right? So they invited him first as friends because Joseph was a high-ranking guy. It's like, yeah, we'll all be friends. It's cool. Bring your family. All of a sudden... You know, the Hebrews are multiplying like rabbits, and it's like, wow, at some point here, they become a formidable force, a potential danger to us. And this other Pharaoh comes, doesn't love Joseph, doesn't know Joseph, decides to enslave him. And so uh, doesn't want him to rise up against him. So, uh, so here's the deal. They make the Hebrews do terrible back-breaking work. They make bricks out of mud and straw. They build huge storage cities for the Egyptians. Um, but even in the midst of that hard labor and even in the midst of that backbreaking work, the Hebrews still continue to multiply and grow in numbers and so strength. So then the Pharaoh commands that all male Hebrew children be thrown into the Nile River to control the population of the Hebrews and to control the strength of their people. And this leads us to Exodus 2. So I just took you highlight version, very highlight version, from Abraham to Exodus 2. Here we're going to pick up Moses, okay? I would encourage you, I'm a little partial. Genesis is one of my favorite books, but I would really encourage you to know this history. Not, not only because it's, it's important for so many reasons, but there are so many opportunities to see the rug get pulled out from under people. Drastic change happened that was unexpected, and God's faithfulness end up winning out time and time and time again. And maybe you're short on examples in your own life, or so you think. But it's really helpful sometimes to draw encouragement from these. And, and the next story we're going to read, you know, Joseph had it rough, sold by, his I mean, sold by his brothers into slavery. That had to hurt. Where we're going to pick up here, though, uh, <clears throat> just thinking through this sermon, it just, this story that we're going to read kind of just hit me right in the gut. And when it comes to change and dealing with it and trusting God, I think uh, the woman we're about to read about is, she's top notch. So, we're Exodus 2. I'm going to start in uh, verse 1, <coughs> and we're going to read to verse 10, okay? Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. Then the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile. When she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, 
This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So then the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Now, many of us have heard this story before. Many of us have read this story before. We've at least heard it referenced too. But I want you to work with me for a second and, and really try to, try to put yourself here emotionally. The change here in this woman's story is, is really from bad to worse. She's already a slave to a country that is intentionally trying to beat them down through hard labor. So it's already a bad situation. But it, it, gets, it gets drastically worse when they begin to order everyone to kill all their male children. So not only are they already enslaved, but now Moses' mother is put in a position. Think about this. She's put in a position where the best option she has is to put her son in a basket in the crocodile-infested water of the Nile River to leave him there. That's the best shot she's got of him living. Can you imagine that? That's uncomfortable to even think about. If you have kids, think of doing this with your own. Having no option but to hope to God your baby doesn't drown or worse. Have no other option but to stick your kid in a body of water and hope they don't die. Because if I turn around and go back, death is certain. If you don't have kids, think of a little brother or sister, a niece or nephew a little baby you love, and having to leave it in a basket in a river because the only other option is genocide. Think about the spot she's in. This is change of the most drastic measure. It's hard to even imagine where a mother's mind would be in facing these options. This is change at its worst. Going from three months of raising this little baby boy feeding him and washing him and holding him to placing him in the water and walking away. Can you just imagine the hot tears filling her eyes and flowing and falling down this mother's face as she walked away? Think about that. Not only, not only to put the baby in the basket and, and, and set it down in the water next to the reeds, but then have to walk away. How do you do that? How could you? Something in her. There must have been some glimmer of hope in her. Because if I think, of, if I think about me and I've got, I've got stick max in a basket in some water that I know not, not, not to, I mean, we're putting a baby in a basket in a river. Forget that there's crocodiles and or other natural dangers, but just the simple drowning risk. If I've got that option or die killing as many soldiers as possible coming through the door to try to take him, I think I might take option B because I have a tendency to have confidence in myself. Something in this mom must have trusted that as she walked away that God would cover this child, that God would take care of him. That's real hard. That's real, real. 
though most of the change that we struggle with is not this gut-wrenching, we, we often think it is. You know, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes we think the difficulties we have are, are on par with this mama. Having, having to deal with the change of, the rules are now, if you have a son, he needs to be murdered immediately. There are people in the world that deal with that, but most of the time it's not us here today. And so a lot of what we're dealing with, it's good to put in perspective that it's lightweight. That helps just right off the bat, right? And sometimes it seems to us that it's, it's of the same caliber, but most of the time it's really not. But just as the rest of Israel's history, going back to Abraham, is filled with faith and trust through change that led to God's deliverance, this story is no different. And if you've read it, you know that. This child not only survives, but is pulled up out of the water by who else but Pharaoh's daughter. She's walking along. She's the one that discovers the basket. Uh, his sister, Moses' sister, which he's not named Moses yet. Pharaoh's daughter is about to do that. But his sister is standing off. She couldn't pull herself away. She's hiding just a little bit away to see what's going to happen to him. And so she takes the opportunity and runs up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, hey, you don't need someone to take care of that baby, do you? And it's so beautiful because, of course, Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, go ahead. And so his sister runs and gets the boy's mama. And how does it end? Not, not just does he not die, but his mama gets to come and take him out of Pharaoh's daughter's hands. And then now, get this, Pharaoh's daughter is going to pay her to take care of her own son with zero fear of him being messed with by the Egyptians. As if that's not, a, I mean, that, you could stop right there. That's all we ever hear about Moses in the Bible. It's like, that's an awesome story. God is faithful. I should take that and put it in my faith utility belt the next time I'm being a Debbie Downer and I'm deciding that God's not going to show up and do what he said he's going to do. I should remember that Moses got stuck in a basket in a river and God showed up. Babies in baskets in rivers should die. Yes or no? I mean, that would be the normal course that that story would take. Yet... God showed up. In a, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's Pharaoh's daughter. The only, only person that's going to find that baby, right? And let's be honest, ladies. Be sensitive enough <laughs> to care that he's crying and then pay somebody to take care of him. One of Pharaoh's sons would have found him. He'd probably be like, oh, I bet I can kick this baby across the river. You know, like. <laughs> but it was Pharaoh's daughter of all people. Just so happened. She picked him up. Compassion filled her heart. She calls for a nurse. And who, who else comes but Moses' mama herself? And now her job is to take care of her son under the protection of Pharaoh's daughter. Win, win, win. What do you do with that? Well, that's a neat story. No. We draw from that. That God is faithful and he does stuff that you never see coming. You think Moses' mama saw that outcome coming as she laid him in that basket in a river? I mean, as she turned and forced herself to walk away from her son and leave him there, you think she saw that coming? There's no way. And yet, and yet, she had enough hope to trust. God showed up, and it worked out, didn't it? I mean, it did better than worked out. I mean, you can't worked out. That falls way short of describing that situation. And if that's all we knew, that would be beautiful. That'd be a beautiful story. Wow. Remember Moses? He was that baby in the basket. 
God saved him, but that's not, even, that's not even the end of it. And this is why the fragment, if you take Moses' baby basket story and you isolate it, it's like, okay, that's cool. I can draw some faith for that. But then you see, hold on. Moses, grow, why was Moses saved? Well, God, the whole deal for all of history, the redemption plan of man was key on Moses' mama being, having the faith to leave him in the basket so he didn't get killed by the Egyptian guards. You see, don't you see how it all ties together? Because then Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house. He ends up killing an Egyptian, fleeing. God sends him back to be the one to say to Pharaoh, hey, you need to let God's people go or else. Something about the experience of growing up in Pharaoh's house is part of how God trains Moses to then lead millions of people out of Egypt in what is commonly referred to as the Exodus, which was key because then they wandered in the wilderness and then they ended up making it to the promised land eventually and then the kings and the prophets and then on down the line, Jesus is born. That's a big deal. You have to ask yourself, and, this, and you need to understand, just because you're not Moses doesn't mean that you, standing in faith in the midst of change, that you, refusing to doubt, refusing to throw your hands and give up, it, just because you're not Moses doesn't mean that it's not absolutely key that you don't trust in the midst of change and difficulty. If you are, if you are called by God out of darkness into light, if you are a, a child of, of Almighty God, then he absolutely has saved you for a purpose. And so he's got work for you to do. And so it's critical. I don't know if there's going to be a book once we get to heaven that lays out the rest of the history. I think God could do that. Or, or minimally, maybe someone will just stand up and tell the story all the time. I don't know, but there are great things God is doing now, even in our midst. It matters that you're not all freaked out when change comes unexpectedly and blindsides you, that you don't give up when you're in a situation. What if Moses' mom would have just gave up, said, you know what, this is Egypt we're talking about. I can't, what can I do? Here, take him, kill him. Who would have went to tell Pharaoh, let my people go? Hmm? You've got work to do. You've got a job to do. God will and can and wants to use you. But part of the key is not freaking out every time change comes. There is much reason to trust him. And beautiful testimonies come out. We overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Do you understand that in the same way we can read this story about Moses today, we can see the absolutely unbelievable way that God delivers him, that God saves his life, that God blesses his mama, we can, we can gain strength from that and we can have faith and see, wow, God does amazing things. Do you know that people can look at your life and do that? Do you know that people can see that though you once struggled, that you were in chains, that you were darkened in your understanding, whatever, everyone's story is different. There was different ways the devil kept us all bound, but in the same way, people can gain strength from your story. Absolutely. And they will. And they will. And, and every opportunity, we get to add to the roster every single time change and difficulty comes. We can either A, stand in faith and see God deliver us. Or we can give up, freak out, run. I think you know which one I'm advocating for. 
The key here is that at least dozens of times in the history of the children of Israel, even just up to what we looked at today, so just if you just read from Abraham to Moses, there would be dozens of times where life-shattering, really unbelievably difficult changes just blindsided people out of nowhere. The ones who trusted God, even in the midst of all hell breaking loose, ended up seeing his faithfulness every time. Go look at, find me a place where God failed. Can't. So why do we struggle to believe it today? And if we really think about it, if we're really honest, if we, and this is, I've said this many times before, one of the greatest sins of my life is not doing a good job remembering and recording the times when God has delivered me, the times when God has answered prayers in such an undeniable way that there is coincidence is ridiculous and laughable. There are those times, many times. And not only should we commit them to memory, should we speak of them often, should we share them with the ones that we love so that they're not lost. I, I advocate you should write it down. And when God shows up big, write it down. Why don't I have a big book? on? I don't have a coffee table home, but I'll find somewhere to put it. Why don't I have a big book just full of the stories of when God has just undeniably shown up on my behalf. I should. When I have friends or family that are broken or struggling, I should say, hey, come read this. Come here, I need to show you something. I need to tell you a story. This change blasted me out of nowhere. I was just reeling, and yet God stabilized me, delivered me, rescued me, and now I get to tell you about it. It's, it's, um, it's been a difficult few months for me and, and some of the other leaders here at Love City. We, we had a change come and blindside us in the last few months, something that kind of hit us out of nowhere that we didn't see coming. Uh, we got word that, um, that this building was being sold. There had kind of been chatter about it, but it seemed like it probably wasn't going to happen. And then, boom, out of nowhere, it was like, we got a deal. It's sold, and you're going to have to be out. <clears throat> Uh, once it gets cold and dark early, no, no less, right? So, um, <laughs> no. So uh, we got word that this building was going to be sold, and so we begin a journey of praying and searching and searching and searching and uh, possibilities falling through and so on. Um, but all the time, I would talk to different leaders, and we would talk about it. We would pray about it together. Uh, we would try to keep the attitude that if God was changing our situation, if he was bringing change, then, then he was going to provide for that. And most likely, in, in those sometimes like when opportunities, the door would close and we were praying the whole time, God, we just, we believe you have a plan and that's what we want. We don't care how good look, something looks or how bad something looks. If you're in it, if you go before us, we will go because you'll make it work and we're with you. And so that was, that was the attitude we took. And so... Um, we did believe that most likely it was going to be an upgrade to help us accomplish the mission that God has given us. We are really thankful for this facility. Um, before we moved here, we started January 2012 with 10 people in a living room. That grew rapidly to the point uh, <clears throat> where the structural integrity of the family's home that we were meeting in was probably in question. And so uh, we had to find a place, and, and we knew that God had called us to Norwood, and so we started looking. And it was hard then. It was hard that time, but it was only through this random set of circumstances where I ran into this person that heard somebody say, not anybody I'd ever even met, um, 
that maybe somebody had some space over here. Ended up calling them, and even that was an uphill climb. It was difficult, but we are really, really grateful. God provided this space for us right when we needed it, and it was a huge blessing. It was, it was all the space we needed at that point, but the reality is um, we're not done growing. And so as we begin this journey of, of knowing that we had to get out, knowing we had to find a spot, we were asking for God's guidance. There was really four things and I shared this with some people, four things that I was praying about, four things that I was asking God for, four things that were really important to me. You know, there was no question we were staying in Norwood. God made it very clear to us from the beginning of planting this church that he wanted us to be in Norwood. It was undeniable, and I've told you that story recently, and so if you haven't heard it, I'll tell you afterwards. I like telling God's stories. They're fun. Um, I like telling stories when, when he shows up, but uh, there was four things we were, we were praying for, and so... <clears throat> um, the first one, and this isn't in order of importance, it's just the order I wrote them down. We needed more room for adults because we're growing. We're busting at the seams. There's several services where we've had people, all, we've used all the chairs we have. The, the, these pews have been filled up. And uh, if the fire marshal came in, I probably would have had to do a little song and dance, maybe slip them 20 bucks to get us out of trouble. So um, we, we were outgrowing this. <clears throat> Listen, I don't know the fire marshal of Norwood, okay? He could be a very nice guy and probably wouldn't take the $20. Sorry, sir, if you hear this sermon. Um, I'm sure you're not given to taking bribes, but I would give you $20. Um, so we needed more room for the adults, okay? We needed a bigger space for the adults. We needed a bigger space for the kids. Our kids' ministry has been busting at the seams, and it's not, I've told you many times, it's not just daycare while we come in here and do spiritual stuff. We, we have a very uh, key strategy, and, and it's very high importance to us that we are discipling the kids. And so we needed not only to have more space for them, we needed to break them up so that we could target the different ages uh, with age-appropriate teaching and discipling materials. And so we weren't able to do that here. It's been a struggle for a while. And so I was asking God that he would provide a way and a, and a space where we could do that. Parking. You guys have been really gracious and parked on the street and whatever. But, it, it, I, you know, kind of as a bonus, I was like, Lord, you know, it'd be cool <laughs> there was a spot for people to park and they didn't have to walk a mile. Um, and uh, another thing that really mattered to me you know, I don't know all the reasons yet, even why God brought us to Norwood, but one of them is because it's very clear to me that he strategically wanted us to link arms and partner with the Salvation Army. And there's a lot of guys that have come and not only been blessed by being a part of Love City, but they've been a blessing to us. And they've integrated and plugged in, and they are some of the strongest believers that we have. And so um, it was really important to me that we didn't, I mean, Norwood's not huge, but there's sections and parts of Norwood that would have made it hard for some of the guys that don't have transportation and so that really narrowed the search and made it really kind of difficult. And so, uh, but I didn't want to be so far that it would be a, it would it would be more difficult <clears throat> uh, for some of our our friends that come from the Salvation Army to make it. So that was a lot. <laughs> that was that was you know, I, I read something recently that said um, if you're not specific in your prayers, you rob God the glory of of answering them. And so I'm, I'm like, the older I get, the more I just pray, God, have your way and have your will. But there are times when I know I'm praying in line of, of his will. And I know it's, I'm not, you know, asking him for an extra yacht or whatever. Uh, you know, and I'm praying for something that he clearly has described in his word that he wants us to do, which us fulfilling the mission he's given us and being obedient to him. I, th I mean, it's a pretty safe bet. Um, I got specific, and I asked God for some things, and I just want to tell you that God was faithful to Abraham, and he was faithful to Isaac, 
and he was faithful to Jacob, and he was faithful to Joseph, and he was faithful to Moses, and he's been faithful to us. Um, we found a spot with all that stuff, and we've already signed a lease, and we've already cut an agreement, and we'll meet there November 17th. So you can give God a hand for that. <laughs>